There is no question that running a nonprofit as a board or staff leader can be frustrating as hell. From high maintenance donors to do nothing boards to a lack of development resources to the emotional frustration of not being able to get the word out about your good work. Bottom line is that most of your frustration lands on your inability to scale, to do more to increase the scope and impact of your work. And the root cause of this, in my mind, is that four-letter word that's actually two four-letter words, overhead. As my guest today wrote in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, donors demand such low overhead costs that they can't hire the talent or invest in the resources they need to maintain the status quo, let alone actually solve the vexing social problems that confront them. This was a fascinating lesson for me to learn when I arrived to the messy world of nonprofits from a career in entertainment. My area of expertise was strategic planning and new business development, building roadmaps for MTV and Showtime, and developing new ways for companies to make money. In the old days, they may have called my work R&D, research and development. We invested time and money. We built the MTV Video Music Awards franchise. We invested to grow. A foreign concept in the new world I arrived to in 1997. No single person has been the nonprofit voice of this frustration more than my guest. Given his past, he's both a powerful and somewhat controversial messenger. I'm a big fan of people who are barrels of contradictions. Today, we dig into the nonprofit overhead myth. Why is keeping overhead low some kind of badge of honor? Why are leaders not challenging this perception that this is actually a good thing? What would challenging it look like? And if you haven't seen my guest's TED Talk, I'm guessing you are in the minority. Last time I checked, it had about four and a half million views. This guy has something important to say. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, gets it. She is here to help. Dan Pallotta is an entrepreneur, author, and humanitarian activist. He is best known for his involvement in the multi-day charitable events with the long-distance breast cancer three-day walks, AIDS rides bicycle journeys, and out-of-the-darkness suicide prevention night walks. Over nine years, 182,000 people participated in these events, raising $582 million all the subject of a Harvard Business School case study. He's the author of Uncharitable, How Restraints on Nonprofits Undermine Their Potential, the best-selling title in the history of Tufts University Press. He's also the author of Charity Case, How the Nonprofit Community Can Stand Up for Itself and Really Change the World, and When Your Moment Comes, A Guide to Fulfilling Your Dreams. He is the president of Advertising for Humanity and also the president and founder of the Charity Defense Council, which we're going to talk about a featured contributor to Harvard Business Review Online. And Pilata's book on charitable was described by the New York Times this way, as seething with indignation at public expectations that charities be prudent, nonprofit, and saintly. The Stanford Social Innovation Review wrote that the book deserves to become the nonprofit sector's new manifesto. Dan, thank you so much for joining me and for leading an effort to move the nonprofit sector to a place where it actually starts to advocate for itself. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joan. It's nice to be with you. Entrepreneur, author, activist. It's it's not a shabby resume, Dan. Would you say that? One of the things I was curious about, I did some digging. Was your early career playing acoustic guitar at coffee houses and pubs? Was that kind of essential to your career path? My my son does drums and house shows, you know, basically people's basements. So your answer may give me a little bit of hope. <laughs> yeah, my earliest career was I wanted to be a goalie in the NHL, but I moved on from that and I yeah, and I was playing clubs all over Boston and Cambridge and then I moved to LA to 
to uh, try to get a record deal. And, and interestingly, you know, I was, I was good. Um, I was almost really good, but I, I wasn't great. <laughs> like Joni Mitchell is great or Neil Young is right. great. And at a point in my life early on, I decided I, I want to be great at something. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to be a, poor copy of, of Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan or something. And, uh -huh. um, yeah. And then, and then I started doing, I was doing work for the Los Angeles gay and lesbian community services center and came up with the idea for the AIDS rides, um, as a part of that while I was still singing and decided, you know, these AIDS rides, this is something I don't think Bruce Springsteen could put together, but I can. And you did. And it did. Yeah. Um, you know, music has meaning and purpose too. So not to, not to belittle it, but you have landed on stuff that you do great that also has meaning and purpose, which maybe is, I don't know, maybe that's part of the definition of great. I don't know. You know, you raise a really interesting point there because I get lots of emails from young people, um, soul searching and thinking about their careers. And they'll pretty consistently say something like, I want to work in nonprofit, almost as if a almost like it's a slang. And I, I'm curious, okay, why would you want to just work in something where there's no profit? And why would you choose, why would you choose a tax status under which you want to work? Because that's all it is before you decide what you're actually great at. Like, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad that Frank Lloyd Wright or Muhammad Ali didn't decide, I want to make a difference in the world, therefore I'm going to go run a soup kitchen and, um, and abandoned all of their natural talents, you know? Right. The people you describe all, they drove purpose in some, I mean, purpose and what's, what you're great at is, he, is a different thing. Great. And I, I think wanting to work in a non, wanting to work in nonprofit, it's sort of driving to the solution before you've actually identified the thing. Yeah. And before you've identified, well, what is it that you're really great at? Because, you know, I mean, look at the look at the contribution that Muhammad Ali made to the world and to, yes. to the lives of millions of children. Look at the contribution that Oprah Winfrey has made to the world by using her natural talent. You know, it could be that you will really waste yourself in the in the wrong career and 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 um and, and only make a fraction of the difference you could have made somewhere else. This notion that you make a difference in the nonprofit sector and you make money in the for-profit sector is so crude and, and poorly thought through. And I think we do a disservice to young people when they think about how do they want to contribute to society to make them think that, oh, well, the way you contribute is you go into the nonprofit sector exclusively. Yeah, it's so interesting uh, because I came from the for-profit sector and then became an ED in the nonprofit sector, I get pinged an awful lot about how do you make that transition? And, you know, these people have never volunteered. They've never been on a board. And so I drive people to board service all the time. And, you know, there are people for whom, amazing though it may seem, I have had this experience where people have turned off of a board and they have said that this has been the most rewarding thing I have ever done. I've been on this board for six years and I have a job that is makes me a lot of money, but this is something that really gives me a sense of meaning and purpose. And um, yeah. you can look and find that in any number of places, can't you? 
Yeah, we were just talking before we started recording about the uh, the beautiful HBO documentary on the last two years of Martin Luther King's life. I mean, it would strike me that the people working at HBO think they're making a pretty big difference making a documentary like that. No question. Um, all right. So uh, talk to us a little bit about what compels you? What's the motivator for you for sort of carrying this flag for this model of abundance in nonprofits? What's the what's the intrinsic motivator for you, Dan? I guess I just hate to see possibility squandered. Um, I hate stupidity <laughs> when I see it. You know, I, I just I, probably nothing more noble than that. It's like, no, no, no. There's another way to do this that is way more powerful. Um, and, you know, look, look, you can't divorce it from the suffering that you that you see in the world. I don't know. As a young kid, you know, just growing up in the being being six years old and seven years old was when Walter Cronkite was on TV reporting about the Vietnam War every night after night after night. And you kind of got the sense as a kid that the human condition was futility. And I, I hated it. It was boring and demoralizing and depressing. I guess I somewhere in my little mind, I thought I, I got to spend the next 80 years with these people like this is this is this <laughs> is the limit of the horizon for them. Um, so I don't know, at, at a young age, I just, I just felt frustration with, uh, leaving possibility on the table. Yeah, there uh, it's, it's about, some of it's about sort of recognizing that there's a problem and, um, just actually being unable to sit idly by. I was working with a bunch of public interest lawyers in DC a couple of weeks ago and had them talk about their sort of early childhood. And um, yes, it was an icebreaker, but we didn't call it that. And really ignited their, you know, sort of lit their pot, relit their pilot light about their why. And so much of it was, a, was clearly like I said at the end of the day, if I had a crisis on the sidewalk, um, there's no group of people I would rather have walking by than any one of you who would who would absolutely call 911 and would never assume someone else would. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, another thing that, that energizes me is when you tell people in the proper setting, like if I give a talk and I, and I have an hour to talk to people and you tell them you want to make a difference in the world, you want to see these problems get solved, you have been taught that the holy grail in charity is for the charity to have low overhead. What if I told you that that is actually undermining your investment? What if I told you that that is actually preventing the problem you want to see solved from getting solved? And at the end of an hour, they are 180 degrees in the other direction. They're saying, I never thought of it this way. I'm never going to ask that question about overhead again. I'm never going to ask a question about a CEO's salary without asking what the person is actually achieving. So if I thought it's like impossible to change people's minds on this, I'd probably be demoralized. But it's actually very easy to change people's mm -hmm. minds. They just haven't had time to think about it. People lead busy lives. I mean, what comes first? Their family, their health, their marriage, their job. 
I mean, they don't think about the economics of the nonprofit sector. That's not something they even have on their bucket list, you know. So when yeah, when you- you're absolutely right. Although, although one could argue, um, just to, because I think about this too, is that you know the folks that ask you to come and speak, or the people that ask me to come and work with an organization or a board, or ask you to come and work for a board, work with a board, those people are interested in changing. Right there, there, there's something about them that's somewhat receptive to the message, don't you think? I do, but there are a fair number of people at the beginning of any talk who have their arms crossed and, um, <laughs> you know, and and uh, are not open. And by the end, they're saying, you know, I came in here not agreeing with with a lot of your ideas, and now I pretty much am seeing the light. Although Robert Kennedy had this famous uh, observation, he said that 25% of the people are against everything all of the time. So, you know, you are going to have that type, but you got to focus on the 75% who are malleable. Bingo, bingo. So it does not take more than a Google search to see that there's, in some ways, there's a bit of irony in the role that you play in the sector as a, a champion for abundance. That's kind of how I think of you. And I was at the I was the executive director at Glad when things kind of hit the fan at Pilata Teamworks, and many LGBT and HIV organizations walked away from your firm that had run a really highly successful AIDS ride. Your name was um, at the time what my mother I think would have called mud in that <laughs> in that community. And yeah. um, and I, I wonder if you can uh, you don't have to go into massive detail about the controversy, but I'm I'm much more interested in. As a result of the controversy, does it make you a particularly good message, messenger or a, um, a maybe a little somewhat soiled? Yeah. You know, when after I wrote my book on charitable in which I kind of deconstructed uh, these things and did a case study on Pilata Teamworks, people, some people, not, not a lot of people, but some people would say, well, you just wrote that book because your company went out of business. And my answer was- You're in the 20th year. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly why I wrote that book. That is exactly precisely why I wrote that book, because we had this incredible enterprise that was netting $80 million a year after all expenses for incredible causes and bringing people together and building massive civic engagement. And it was wildly misunderstood. You know, it'd be like say saying, "Well, was was James Brady a bad spokesperson for gun control because he actually was a victim of it?" Oh, interesting. I don't know anybody who becomes a spokesperson for anything unless they were a victim of it. Yeah. You can't arrive at these conclusions. A friend of mine said, "I'm sorry that this had to happen to you." You know, the whole Pilata Teamworks thing, but it had to happen to someone for a book like this to get written. You just, you don't arrive at these conclusions in a vacuum. You don't arrive at them theoretically, not, not in a way that becomes powerful. You don't. Well, there's some. It would be like saying, it would be like saying, well, gay and lesbian, the, the human rights campaign shouldn't defend gay and lesbian people. They're soiled because they get all their money from gay and lesbian people. <laughs> Yeah, well, that was, that's the affected population, yes. you know. I, I also uh, I don't know if you've ever um, one of my one of my favorite books on leadership is actually a book by Howard Gardner called Changing Minds, and mm. um, he also has another book called Leading Minds, which I like very much. And you know, the most powerful leaders embody the narrative, 
and are able to, you know, there, he talks about Margaret Thatcher as someone who grew up as a working class person. And, you know, so there's, there's a lot about the lived experience and in, in many ways makes you a much more credible messenger. Yeah. And there's something about, there's something about deep knowing, like at the level of your soul versus just cerebral knowing. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, when, when we were doing the AIDS rides, I mean, part of the reason I jump up and down and scream, you need to invest in your growth, you need foundations, take all that capital, stop giving it to programs, start investing it in the growth of the organizations you love. When you, you know, start something like the AIDS ride and you struggled for 10 years trying to write, you know, write grants for the LA Gay and Lesbian Center. And if you were lucky after two years of work, you got a $25,000 grant from the California Community yes. Foundation. And then all of a sudden, one day, $80,000 in checks comes in for the AIDS rides. And the next day, $92,000 comes in. And the next day, one hundred and seven. dollars When you've internalized that, you just you get you can't turn away from it. You you kind of have a different sense of you don't have a choice anymore. You've seen something, and you need to tell other people who haven't seen it. Hey, I've seen something. And and just for listeners who may not be completely aware, the issue was how much uh, how much the cost the percentage of costs with regard to the AIDS ride was of concern to people. Is that isn't that that's kind of the bottom line? Yeah, we had a, on average, you know, a 45% overall cost on the events of 55% net. And, um, and people made a lot of errors. They thought, oh, that 45% is going to Dan Pilata. No, it's going to trucks and to chemical toilets and to advertising and to yeah. meals and to tents, you know. And then also, we, uh, another error was, you have to look at the volume of money being raised. You're trying to compare us to a little bike ride, say in Hawaii, that yeah. um, only cost 10 cents on the dollar. Yeah, but they only raised $6,000. <laughs> We're raising $100 million a year. And if they ever wanted to get to that scale, they'd have to start spending at that rate too. But the, the biggest error I think people make is that the 55% that, quote, went to the cause is good. The 45% is a necessary evil, <laughs> but it isn't really. If you look at what costs are embedded in that 45%, it's money spent mostly on salaries for full-time people that are trying to get Americans engaged in the great causes of their time. It's for advertising full-page ads in the New York Times about AIDS and breast cancer. Yep. It's an investment in building civic engagement. It's an investment in strengthening civil society. We give great permission to political campaigns to spend 100% of our political donation on getting the vote out, right? On getting people mm -hmm. engaged. But we don't want nonprofit organizations to get people engaged. Well, what does that mean? It means you're going you're to always have this tiny population of people carrying the weight of everyone else because you're not spending any money to get other people up and off their couches and involved in the great issues of their time. And that's what the AIDS rides and the breast cancer three days did. Got hundreds, tens of thousands of people who had never been activists at all, or certainly nothing on the level that they became right. with our events, got them to become activists. That has enormous got value. Them, right? You got them up on their feet. You got them off the couch, on their feet, on their bikes. And who knows what they're doing today, 15 years right. later, to make that's, a difference To me, that's, you're absolutely right, Dan. To me, is once you ignite someone, 
it gets really hard for the flame to go out. And you have, you have no idea today that as a result of one thing you do for, to ignite one person, what the ripple effect of that is. And I, I think that's the thing people so miss is it, it, it when you ignite somebody, it's really hard to put, this, put the fire out. Yeah, and you can't account for that on on your ledger, right? Because no, it's going to happen. You totally 15, can't. But it has it has real it has real value, you know. On a, on a, just a more mundane level, the way we account for, say, um, direct response, or the way we the way we account for call centers, you know, someone someone will World Vision called me up, I don't know, thirty years ago. And said, "Will you make a donation to World Vision?" Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Twenty-four dollars a month. I've been doing for thirty years. And what is that? Seven, eight thousand dollars. Well, they only got to book about eighty dollars against the expense that it cost right. to engage me then. But the real value in 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 um, measurable dollars is is many thousands of dollars, separate from any even ripple effect. You know. So if if more, I mean, so you have me at hello on this, and uh, um, but if more overhead results in measurably better um, outcomes, what is the argument of the naysayers? What do the naysayers say to you about this? Well, the naysayers have a lot of opinions, but they don't actually have an argument. I, I, I haven't actually heard an argument. Now, you, you have oh, to be careful, right, because... The, the massive assumption underlying everything I say, when I say, you know, don't look at overhead, I'm also saying look at impact. I'm not saying don't look at anything, right? And the big assumption underlying everything I say, when I say invest more in overhead, invest more in talent, is that you actually have a methodology that's having an impact. Because this argument is very dangerous in the hands of... Uh, of someone who has no intention to have an impact, but just wants to raise a lot of money. But the overhead ratio is dangerous in their hands as well. You know, some people will say, well, first of all, if we don't, if we don't measure people by overhead, what do we measure them by? Um, oh, we should use overhead because it's the only measure we have. Well, that's like saying you take your kid's temperature with a broken thermometer because it's the only thermometer you have in the house. <laughs> but then they'll also say, well, if you, if you don't, if you tell people not to ask about overhead, then you're giving cover to um, wasteful organizations. Guess what? The overhead ratio has been giving cover to wasteful organizations for decades because all that organization had to show you was that they had low overhead, which they could do with any variety of accounting tricks. Oh, it's and you yeah, and never answer the game. question about whether they were having an impact. And you would never ask. So you've got all of these organizations that are really great at fundraising and PR and marketing, right? And they know how to market you with low overhead ratios but they may not be having any impact whatsoever. The fact that an organization only spends 5% on overhead doesn't mean that you now know they're not wasteful. How do you know they're not wasting the 95 cents they tell you they're spending on? That's where all the money is. That's where all all the opportunity for waste goes. So the overhead measures are really, uh, really obscures the important stuff in very dangerous ways. So you started an organization and, you know, I follow what you read and what you write. And uh, 
that there needed to be sort of this movement. And it, it seems like you, your organization is kind of the voice for the message you just communicated. It's called Charity Defense Council. And if I read it right on the 990, you've got revenue of about 200 grand. And I, I actually wondered, um, are you happy with where it is? Are you frustrated by the lack of traction? Um, I'm frustrated. Yeah. yeah. It's the most difficult organizing that I've ever done. Um, number one, because this is a, this is structural stuff, right? This isn't sexy. It's, you can't easily show a picture of a starving child or, you know, someone with cancer. Um, we're talking about systemic structural change. So it's not sexy to begin with. Secondly, I would say the nonprofit sector has a profound inability to get pissed off. And oh my gosh, isn't that just the ultimate irony? It truly is. Uh, it's sort it of, truly it sort is. of reminds me, Dan. So, right, people that get engaged in the nonprofit sector usually do because they're pissed off about some sort of inequity in society or right. some wrong they're trying to right. I also find because a lot of what the work that I do is change management within an organization, right? And there you have yeah. all these organizations that are in the business of change, and I often find the most change resistant people are people who work at nonprofits. Absolutely, <laughs> and they're. And they're terrified of doing something that might upset donors, and they they crave those seals of approval from the watchdogs, which have largely been um, granted on the basis of you having low overhead. I, I've often said it's it's ironic to see the most radical, angry, outspoken, nose ring wearing, spike haired, punk tattooed <laughs> activist cower at the sight of the Better Business Bureau coming to uh, give them a rating or, uh, well, the Better Business Bureau doesn't a do charity, a charity I navigator mean, I think, yeah. to, to give them a rating, you know? It is crazy how money, yeah. it's about money, right? It's about the power of money and it just creates such a dynamic in an, in an organization. And I think it gets to your point about scarcity versus abundance, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Scarcity versus uh, abundance. And, and, you know, with respect to frustration at the growth of the Charity Defense Council, you know, if the, if the African-American community or if the gay and lesbian community had the kind of inability to get pissed off that exists in the nonprofit sector, we would never have made any progress. And, and as a gay man, I, I use coming out as an analogy often, you know, people like to study uh, the political movement and they like to study the, the national organizations mm -hmm. and what their strategies were. That's all important, but it, none of it would have been possible if it weren't for millions and millions of gay and lesbian people risking everything, risking their relationships with their parents and their grandparents and their friends to come out and to say, this is who I am, and this is my truth. None of none of the progress would have been made in the absence Amen. of that. And we need that in the nonprofit sector. We need people to come out about their dreams and say, I am not in this to have a tombstone that reads, I kept the overhead low. You know, I am in this because I want to change the world, and the constraints that you're placing on me are not allowing me to do that. This is your life. This is your career. Are you going to squander it? because you want to look good. Yeah. You know, you're going to squander your potential and your ability to make a difference because you want approval against the 
societal norms, and it's particularly wild to see gay and lesbian organizations um, adhering to these constraints, you know, like they're not being queer about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I want to talk about marketing. This is something that's really, uh, really been in my craw. And um, basically, sort of social media, online marketing. And I have generally found that there are nonprofit organizations that see marketing as, first of all, see it as, gee, well, my good work should really stand for itself. So why do I need a really lovely cover on my book report? But secondly, maybe I've just learned this because of my own online presence, is that... Online marketing, whether it's Facebook or your website or Instagram or whatever it might be, is actually about mobilizing people. And mobilizing people is about power. And power is about influence and influence is about impact. And I can't tell you how many people say, do you know somebody who can help me build a website? And then somebody says, well, that's too much money because that's too, you know, that's a marketing dollars. And can we reframe the, the the work that a nonprofit does online as um, as in like in absolutely intrinsic to impact? Well, that's why I I say that we have to we have to reframe fundraising uh, as building civic engagement um, and strengthening civil society because that is what it is. It is sending people out into the world to find other people to get involved in these causes. I think there's another point with respect to marketing, though. Yeah, the, somebody I quoted in my book, can't remember who it was, said that the nonprofit sector finds marketing to be an unnatural act. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but I was in I was in Charlotte uh, I don't know four or five months ago giving a talk and they have huge problems with economic mobility in that city uh, worst in the nation and they hired consultants and brought the community together and wrote a report and on the cover of the report was the question how do we create a community of caring. And this occurs to people as a conundrum, right? This occurs to people as vexing, as a difficult question. It's not a difficult question at all. How do you get, how do you create a community of caring the same way we created a community of consumption? We invested in it. We invested heavily to create this community of consumption. We allow Apple, and we would, it would be considered malfeasance for Apple to launch the iPhone 10 without mm -hmm. an adequate advertising budget to one, let the public know that the iPhone 10 now exists, and two, let the public know about all the good that the iPhone 10 does. But totally. a nonprofit is somehow expected to let the general public know about all of the good that they do so that they can raise more money to do more good without ever spending any actual money on it. You know, well, the good that I do should be enough to let people know how the, the good that you do lives in your own head. It yep. lives on your books inside your office, on your little website. Do you know how many websites, there's, how many millions of websites there are in the world? If you aren't <laughs> spending money to direct people there, they're never going to know. We are talking with Dan Pallotta. He is a person with a serious point of view. He'll always tell you what he thinks, and he is an entrepreneur, an author, 
and humanitarian activist. He's the brains behind the AIDS rides, the breast cancer walks, and suicide prevention night walks, and the author of Uncharitable. Stanford Social Innovation Review said that it deserved to become the nonprofit's new uh, sector manifesto. Um, we just have a few more minutes, Dan, before we have to wrap. And I, I know that our listeners are desperate to untangle this knot. And if you had a room full, let's pretend you have a room full of executive directors here, and then we're going to pretend you have a room full of board members. And I want to, I want you to talk real briefly about BoulderBoard.com. What advice do you have for executive directors and development directors? What can or should they be doing differently? And do you have resources, uh, you know, in in your in your world that you've created that can be of help to them? Yeah, people probably aren't going to like this answer, but <laughs> the people, <laughs> what they need to be doing is dreaming at the most fundamental level about the impact that they want to have in the world. And see, we want to attack these problems at a more tactical level. That's we're pulled at the tactical level. So people will ask you or me and our consultants all the time, what do I do to get my board more engaged? Mm -hmm. How can I increase my fundraising? Um, it's like you've got a car with no gas in it and you keep repainting it, thinking that that's somehow going to get it to go. How do you get your, more, your board more engaged? Stop boring them to death. Oh, totally. Be up to something gigantic in the world that takes their breath away. How do you raise more money? Not with some clever fundraising scheme. It's by having mm -hmm. a mission that people can't stay away from. Everybody wants to study best practices. Best practices typically are arrived at by somebody who's on a massive mission, some big dream, and they learn the way to do it. If you try to deploy the best practices in the absence of taking a risk, in the absence of taking a big chance, having a big dream, they're just, they're, they're going to be ineffectual. And we see that over and over again. So you must have a North Star. You must be driven by this is the thing that I want our organization to accomplish. I want this seemingly impossible achievement by this seemingly impossible date and time. And, you know, people say, oh, dreams, they're, they're sophomoric, they're silly, they're unserious. A dream taken seriously, you know, underlined, taken seriously. This achievement by this date, those are the most sophisticated things known to humanity. You, you look at the sophistication of the Apollo program or the civil rights movement. A great dream drives innovation. It doesn't happen the other way around. A great dream drives collaboration. You know, we keep preaching to nonprofits. You have to collaborate. You have to collaborate. In the absence of any breathtaking purpose that the collaboration would actually serve. I think, you know, I think what's really unserious, what's really sophomoric, is for us to squander our time on anything less than the most daring dreams we're able to engineer. Right, because isn't that what, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more on all of this. I remember doing a three-year plan at GLAD, and if you can actually create something that the board can really own and grab and really get excited about, guess what you can do? In the first year of that plan, I added two development people and no program staff. Because I had to put gas in the car to yeah. get to where we wanted to go. Most boards would never even touch a budget where the only salary increases were fundraising staff. But I was able to do right. that because we actually created a picture of something that they wanted to be a part of. Yeah. Makes a big difference. 
Um, the, the flow has to go, I have this incredible dream for impact. In order to achieve that dream for impact, we are going to have to grow to this size. In order to grow to this size, we are going to have to spend this much money on fundraising and engagement. If you try to do it backwards the other way, you know, how do I convince my board to be able to spend more money on overhead? For, for what purpose? If you have no purpose, right. then, then don't bother. There is no reason to spend more money on overhead, you know, so you've got to start, you, you got to start and you got to stay in the, in the dream. And, uh, you know, I just believe that profoundly that the, that the people who are thinking most boldly are the people who are doing really interesting things in the world. Tell me really quickly before I uh, before I lose you about boulderboard.com and about anything else listeners should hear about your work that may be of value to them. Oh, yeah, thanks. Well, you know, I, I like you, I give a lot of talks uh, often to staff and they'll say, geez, I wish I could get my board to think this way. And they'd been saying that for me to me for years. So uh, about a year ago, I decided to do something about that. And we created this program called the Boulder Board Training. And it happens on a Saturday. We're doing seven of them this year in in six different U.S. cities and in Brisbane, Australia. And it's a it's a luxurious day that you don't typically have the bandwidth for for a board to come together with staff leadership and and really dream big about impact and get disenthralled about all these old ideas they have about overhead and spending as well. So it's not your typical governance fiduciary duty kind of board training. You know, there are lots of people who do that and they do it well. This is about really taking the time to figure out. What it, what it is you're dreaming about and how you're going to achieve that. Um, so that you can find those resources at boulderboard.com. And it's boulder like, not like the thing that goes up a mountain, but the thing that Dan thinks we all ought to be, which is bold. Boulderboard.com. Dan has a website at danpalata.com. And um, Dan, uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, and uh, for those of you who don't know, Dan's uh, some of three of Dan's biggest accomplishments are his triplets. <laughs> so if, if you if you think he has a big job, just think about <clears throat> he's leaving to go on vacation with three triplets with a triplet ten-year-olds uh, on an airplane tomorrow. So um, I hope that that the trip is smooth and that your kids have a blast. And um, thank you for being bold yourself. Thank you, Joan, for all that you do, too. Okay, great. Um, so that's it for today. Thank you to Dan for joining us. And never hesitate to join us over at joangary.com with two R's for my weekly musings and advice for board and staff leaders. Uh, this podcast has tons of different topics you can find on iTunes. And um, I also have a membership site for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. It's currently closed, but you can jump on a wait list and learn more about that at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Until next time, as always, thank you so much for everything you do. Take care. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook 
at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary. 